everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers, and here it comes, another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring and back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, how's it feeling up in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee? Oh, it's lovely, man. A really, really nice, uh, beautiful 70 day. In the 70s during the day, down in the 50s at night. <laughs> uh, going to go down into the 40s this next week, so, you know, uh, at night. So, uh, yeah, wow, it's beautiful. That's- I think your leaves are going to start turning, my man. That's That's what's going to happen here. In the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I bet that's going to be a beautiful sight too. And and man, you're you're just living the dream right there in the summertime in the mountains, in the wintertime, in the spring, in the fall. Hey, stud, I tell you what, in the last stud cast, it was number three eighteen. This is number three nineteen. In the last one though, you said that the next two stud casts were going to be a little different, and I assume you were talking about your difficult decision of what to do next about the wrestling war in Tennessee and your two-territory operation that had been so hard to deal with in 1979. So I guess that's why this studcast is titled Beginning of the End of a Horrible Year. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much says it all right there, Dave. Uh, you know, obviously you're correct about that. And, and I think a little ride back in time would be a good way to get this studcast started. Like I said, it's going to be a little different than what we normally do. And all this two-territory idea began in March of 1978 after we bought the old Gulf Coast Territory from Lee Fields and opened the second Southeastern Territory. And that's when Southeastern became the only territory operation in the National Wrestling Alliance. I don't know that there ever was more than uh, more than Southeastern that had two territories running at one time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we're, we were kind of, uh, kind of, uh, in our own realm at that. Uh, so after a tough start in the, in that new territory, which we lit up to basically the Gulf coast down there in September, 1978, we made a very smooth transition to talent and from the Tennessee territory to the Gulf coast. Uh, Rob was leaving his booker September of 1970, uh, 78, and, uh, and uh, he took the job, uh, obviously, down there in the Gulf Coast. Uh, Bob had been down there handling it some, and so uh, Bob, Rob went down there and started doing that, and I made Bob Roop uh, the new booker in Tennessee. So that was the first mistake I made four months before 1979 even arrived. So I guess I'm kind of responsible in, in a great deal of ways for, for my own uh, – my own shortcomings, I guess, is a, a good way to put it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and and Rob is the new Gulf Coast booker. He took some of, obviously, the best wrestlers in the world with him, man. The Mongolian Stomper went down there. Gorgeous George Jr. went down there. Uh, Tony Charles, Jimmy Golden, Don Carson, Ricky Gibson, Norvell Austin, and others, you know. And uh, obviously, he, he I sent him down with my blessing. Because uh, Bob Roop was going to be booking, and he didn't have need for all those guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rob's going down there, uh, starting kind of starting with a new crew. So during this time in the fall of 1978, the Tennessee Territory was still loaded, still had a great crew. And uh, it was going to soon be adding Bob Armstrong and myself to that crew uh, up in Tennessee. So basically, fall of 1978, both territories were on fire. And uh, – we, uh, we were setting records, man, for, for the year uh, and looking forward to 1979. Wow. Okay, so I see where you're writing now. Your two-territory idea had proven to be a great one, really, at the beginning of 1979. So it kind of snowballed and went in the wrong direction after that, right? Yeah. Well, you know, in January 1979, my father and Jerry Jerry, who were owners of the Memphis Territory, they were suffering badly at the box office in all their cities up in that Memphis area. And without discussing it with me first, they made an offer to my brother for Rob to come to Memphis and become their booker. And uh, they had committed at that point, what was a real no-no in the sport. You didn't get, you didn't contact uh, 
other guys, other territories, bookers to try to hire him. But uh, so Rob came to me and talked to me about it. But uh, he admitted, you know, he, he said, Ron, uh, this is a tremendous offer. And, uh, and uh, you know, I can't I don't know how to turn this down. Uh, he said, because the offer's so good. And so, you know, I said, well, what was the offer? And once he told me, I said, geez, man, you know, I can't hardly blame you, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to let him go. But uh, but I was at this point, you know, I, I was not only going to help my brother get a great opportunity here, but uh, I was going to help my father as well, who needed a new booker and a good booker. So I felt kind of good about that uh, when it first went down. But uh, then that was my first mistake in 1979, was letting my brother go and start doing the booking in uh, Tennessee uh, and Memphis area. So I replaced Rob with a good booker, a former Florida Territory booker, Louis Tillette, someone I knew since my first year in the business. Uh, and he had actually worked for me in Knoxville in 1975, early 1976. Helped me get my first southeastern business off the ground. So Louis struggled at first in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory because a lot of those wrestlers that Rob had taken south with him down into the Gulf Coast territory were starting to get offers of big money to go to Memphis as well. So you know, uh, so after being there for about uh, five months, uh, Louis started to find some great talent. Uh, and uh, specifically down there for the Gulf Coast Territory. He found Terry Bolio, who's the, going to be the Hulk. Uh, he found the Samoan Tag Team Brothers, the guys that were related to The Rock, uh, Alpha and Sika. Uh, he found Austin Idol. Uh, he had Ox Baker that came in. Uh, you know, that's a pretty good example of some pretty darn good talent there. So by May of 1979, he was beginning to get business back where it had been in the summer of 1978. Basically, things were starting to look up. Uh, so really, both territories were back to the level that they had been in May of 1978, right? Yeah, that's true, you know. And uh, But then, disaster struck, man. About that same time, the Tennessee Booker and four wrestlers in the territory, Bob Roop was the Booker, Ronnie Garvin, Greg Malenko, Bob Borden Jr., and Ron Wright, these guys were plotting to steal the territory. And I didn't find out about it until June of 1979 when they started their own wrestling company. So uh, a wrestling war was the last thing I ever thought I was going to experience as, a, as an owner of a company, but it happened. Uh, and it wasn't just any war, but it was one of the worst wrestling wars ever. And it was going to kill everything I had literally filled my blood, sweat, and tears for from 1975 until 1979. Mm. So during the summer of 1979 and into September of 1979, Louis and the Gulf Coast Territory, he managed to lose the Hulk. He lost the great Samoan team. But he lost Crusher Blackwell, who had gone up there, uh, had gone down there, and he, and, he, and he lost even worse the momentum of what he had created in the early part of 19, in the summertime of 1979. So I fired Louie, and, uh, and, and I've been uh, in the last few studcasts trying to rejuvenate the Gulf Coast territory myself, been down there booking, and in that Tennessee territory, we tried everything to fill the Coliseum again, as we had regularly done for two straight summers, actually three, three straight summers mm. in the late 1970s. Uh, with and we had better cards, I think, uh, in at this time frame than we had during that time frame. Mm -hmm. So obviously, because we weren't filling the building anymore, the the war was kind of ruining it all. So that kind of brings us up to where we are today, man. In in the second week of October, nineteen seventy nine. That's kind of a that's a pretty sad picture that you painted, Ron, of how things got to where we are in October of nineteen seventy nine. Exactly as the title of this studcast says, the beginning of the end of a horrible year. So where do we ride from here? Well, like I said, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, uh, we, we have two more excellent cards, uh, one in each territory for this studcast. It's going to be in this studcast. 
And, uh, and how about we begin with these two cards, and then we'll return to this subject I just finished. I kind of was bringing people up on what had happened in 1979, from the beginning of 79 into September of 1979. So we'll come back to that after we finish with, uh, with our regular cards. All right, sounds good. So, all right, which territory do you want to kick off with? Well, uh, how about let's go to Tennessee first, man. Uh, you know, uh, their card and their TV. Uh, we'll talk about their card, their TV. Uh, we'll talk about the results of the card, the Knoxville attendance. And, and then I've also got another all-star card that uh, I've got, I can give everybody today. And then we can ride south down to the Gulf of Mexico in a mobile. And uh, we'll get the card for there, which is the same card in Montgomery and Dothan that week. And uh, we'll uh, get the TV that promotes that card and the card's results. And we'll do the attendances in all three of the markets. And then we're going to come back here to where we just finished and maybe find out more about what was going to happen next in the horrible year of 1979. <laughs> all right. So let's start with, as you said, I think Knoxville Coliseum card, Friday, October 12th, 1979. Yeah, we got a guy returning there, man, that was very popular uh, and had been great down in the Gulf Coast Territory. Dr. D, David Schultz, was returning, and he was wrestling Dino in the opening match for that card. Uh, Tor Tanaka wrestled uh, Wayne Rogers. Paul Orndorff and Tony Charles were in a tag against Norville Austin and the Angel, um, who was Frank Morrell, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, they were basically closing out their feud that they'd been having for most of the summer. And uh, they were doing it with a loser-leave match, loser-left southeastern Tennessee. Uh, then in a return southeastern title match, Dick Slater was facing Jack Briscoe again. And then the last match uh, on that card was a $10,000 NWA non-sanctioned lights-out bounty match. And... Uh, it had no disqualification, no time limit, because it was a lights-out match. There had to be a winner, and uh, the Mongolian Stomper was going to be taking on Alexis Smirnoff, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. All right, you were right. That that definitely had to put some butts in some seats. That's a good card. So what about the TV that set that card up? Well, it opened with Robert at the set, and uh, he was taped up from the night before. Him and Les watched the last three minutes of a, they had a, Jimmy and Rob had a 30-30 match, it was called. It was really a different type of match. If Jimmy didn't win in the first 30 minutes, the second 30 minutes of the match turned into Texas death rules. But this match didn't even get through the first 30 minutes. Both Rob and Jimmy got disqualified. Both of them were pretty bloody. And uh, it was a nasty, a nasty little thing which had been a lot of the matches between Rob and Jimmy. They, they, they really, they had no like for each other at that point. And, uh, and I was there again. And, you know, I wasn't there again, you know, and I, I wish I had been there. But uh, Les and, uh, said that Rob did a great interview after they watched this video, saying that he never believed him and his cousin Jimmy could dislike each other as much as they did right now. You know, and he said... They had both lost their hair in matches to each other. And, and now, uh, as in every real wrestling feud, usually when you got a big feud, the last thing that goes down is a loser-leave match. And that's where they were. They were at that point. Uh, uh, one of them's going to be gone from uh, Tennessee, and the other one is, uh, is going to hang in there. So, um, you know, Les said Robert didn't want to go any further, though, you know, saying that he had uh, – that both of them and basically lost a lot of blood already, enough blood lost between the two of them. Mm. And as much as he loved this part of the country, he was willing to leave if he lost. Wow. All right. It really sounded like from the heart from your brother. So what was the first TV match? Well, Jimmy Golden was in the first TV match. Rob was sitting there to sit. <laughs> uh, Jimmy comes out. So <laughs> Jimmy, you know, Les said uh, he invited Rob to stay at the set with him to watch the match with Jimmy, obviously. And uh, Les said, basically, you know, he told me when we talked about this TV, and we did all these TVs. We talked about them in great depth uh, after, after the television was over because I was south, down south. And uh, Les said, 
he regretted asking Rob to stay there because he said during the entire match, Jimmy just kind to uh, kept trying to entice Rob to, to come to the ring, you know, and uh, Jimmy was just pulverizing his opponent in such a way that, uh, you know, Rob wanted to go, but uh, he didn't. He never went. So the second match had two of the fan favorites in the ring. Uh, Paul Orndorff, who was really getting over at that time, and everybody loved Tony Charles. And they were going to be partners the next Friday night against Norvell Austin and the angel, Frank Morrell. Mm. And uh, Les said Norvell and the angel uh, joined him at the set for comments. You know, uh, obviously, Gorgeous George Jr. was doing all the comments. So. <laughs> you know, he was, the, he was the mouthpiece for those two guys. So uh, and then he said, uh, Norvell, during the course of these comments, never stopped complaining about how Charles, Tony Charles, was avoiding him. You know, and the, the week before, they had had a, a United States a Junior Heavyweight Championship match. Uh, it was a 30-minute time limit that went to the time limit, and that uh, Tony kept refusing to give him another title shot. But, you know, he, he, he kept uh, telling Les, you know, I'm going to get it, and uh, and this time, he says, when I get it the next time, it's going to be a no-time limit match. So uh, Les Esty asked uh, Norvell, you know, how, uh, how, how Norvell was going to make that happen. How are you going to do that exactly, Norvell? <laughs> and uh, so uh, Norvell said, you know, Les, he goes, me and the angel here, we got a plan. You know, and he says, I got a second angel, Les. This is the one in the ring with me, but I got another angel who's ready to help me get this championship match with uh, Tony Charles. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Time for the personality profile, right? Yeah. Someone, you know, uh, uh, someone that, you know, who had never been live on the Southeastern television show before was on this profile. Hmm. And that was the former NWA world champion, Jack Briscoe. He'd been in them several interviews that had been sent in. But he was live on this show, and he had stayed overnight uh, to do me a favor and be be on the show live. And he and Les uh, watched the end of the Southeastern Championship match from the night before in the Coliseum, and uh, and I'd heard a, you know, uh, he was wrestling uh, for the Southeastern Championship with Dick Slater, and I'd heard a lot of wrestlers uh, that had told me Jack had become a darn good heel since he lost the NWA title. And uh, Les confirmed that. He said, wow, he really was, Ron. He, is, he really changed. So, uh, so Les said on the video from the night before, Jack uh, tied Slater in the ropes. And, uh, and when he tied him in the ropes, he, he busted his eye on purpose. And, uh, and then the referee trying to untie him from the ropes, and Jack wouldn't let the referee untie him from the ropes. He even threw the referee out of the ring, got disqualified. Uh, and then Les said uh, Briscoe uh, had a lot of heat with the studio audience. But mm -hmm. uh, all of those people came to the match the night before. They're in the studio, and uh, they didn't like it for sure. And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, and for Les said, you know, Jack wasn't for a lot. wasn't with a, had wasn't looking lost for words, man. He says uh, he told uh, Les. He goes, you know, here's my whole story, Les. It's pretty simple. He said, I'm going to gain, regain my world title, and I'm here for only one thing, that Southeastern belt. Wow. To the point. That's how you do it. That's, that's how I remember Jack Briscoe. Okay, so who was in the next TV match? Well, the Mongolian Stomper was in the ring next. But first, Gorgeous George Jr. and Alexis Smirnoff, uh, they joined Les at the set, and uh, they watched how Gigi and Smirnoff and Tor Tanaka that all three ganged up on the stomper the night before at the end of his match. He was in the, in the match with Smirnoff. Obviously, uh, Tanaka came down to the ring. Gorgeous George got involved. And, and uh, Gigi was extremely unset with, upset with Paul Orndorff, uh, who Gigi said, you know, came down and he, and he said, Les, he stuck his nose into something that was no, none of his business, and, uh, and he's going to pay for it. So uh, Paul came down, he said, uh, you, you know, to help the stomper. And as Gigi put it, uh, he stopped what he, what he would have been, uh, you know, that would, would have been the end of the stomper. He said, uh, you know, if he hadn't have come down here, we're all three on the stomper. He said, the bounty would be done. 
I would have paid it off last night. The Stomper would still be in a hospital somewhere today. And then he'd be finally on his way back to Canada for retirement or something. You know, so, uh, so Gigi asked Les if, uh, <laughs> if they could stay at the set as the Mongolian Stomper entered the ring. Uh, they wanted to do the same thing, maybe, that Les had talked to Rob about, be there to make some comments. Mm-hmm. So uh, Stomper didn't like that, I don't think, Les said. And he said it didn't take very long to just do a job on his opponent, man. And uh, he said as soon as he got his hand raised, uh, and then Les said he headed straight for the set, man. And that sent Gigi and Smirnoff running for the dressing room. <laughs> so Stomper was at the set, so he went ahead and did his interview about the upcoming NWA non-sanctioned lights out match. Mm. Now, basically, he said, you know, this is a perfect match, man, to end this battle with the Russian. You know, and he said, uh, uh, then I can send the Russian back to Moscow, and then all I got to do, Les, is figure out how to get my hands on gorgeous George Jr. <laughs> All right, this sounds like a fun but a pretty interesting TV show. So what was the like the last TV match? Well, the last match was the Southeastern champion, Dick Slater. And uh, obviously at this point, Slater had been there for six or seven months. He, he was really over. And uh, I don't think he had lost the Southeastern championship uh, since he take, uh, got the belt. And, uh, you know, he was really over at that time as a babyface. So... So he wore his belt out to the ring, and uh, he was heavily taped up from the night before. Like I said, uh, the video and, and the personality profile, Briscoe watched where he busted his eye on purpose and then just kept whacking him in it, you know, and he didn't just have taped up. He had a black eye to boot. So, uh, so you know, uh, Rob and Jimmy uh, uh, were, uh, you know, uh, on that uh, – uh, in that same situation, they had been taped up in the show too, so there was a lot of, lot of stuff had gone on bad the night before, and a lot of bad blood out there. So Slater laid his belt on the ring apron, uh, right in his corner when he started the match, and he was basically taking care of business on the end of the show, and he was about to end the match, and he had his back turned uh, uh, to uh, where Briscoe was standing in the second studio. Nobody could see him there. And Jack Briscoe came running from that studio in and he grabbed Slater's belt that was in the corner of the ring. Slater still got his back turned, don't even know what's going on. And then he turned around to face the cameras and uh, and then he held the belt up over his head, had a big smile on his face. He basically, you know, had told, uh, you know, Les that uh, I'm here to get the belt, right? So <laughs> I guess that's the way he figured he was going to get the belt. So, uh, so Les said the smile on his face, though, didn't last very long because he said Slater saw what he was doing. He slid out of the <laughs> ring, and, and uh, as Les put it, he said he knocked him in the next week, Ron. Wow. <laughs> he did with one of those big Slater right hands. Wow. So, so uh, he said, wow. He said Jack played there for quite a while. Yeah, I bet. All right, so, so really another great TV. What happened six days later? Let's go to the Coliseum. Well, the returning David Schultz got his first win uh, since he came back uh, over Dean Ho. Uh, Tore Tanaka basically destroyed Wayne, Wayne Rogers, who was not a big star in any form or fashion. And uh, Tanaka was way too too big for him and too bad for him. Uh, Norvell Austin and the Angel, who were managed by gorgeous George Jr., won over Tony Charles and Paul Orndorff. And... Uh, in that match, Orndorff had the Angel going with uh, Charles taking uh, care of Norvell, and uh, Gigi drew the referee's attention on purpose, obviously, and Jimmy Golden sneaked down into the ring. Tony Charles was over there pounding on Norvell. Golden turned him around and hit him. Uh, he had something on his fist, and uh, then uh, he just sneaked back out of the ring, left the ring. Uh, Norvell got the pin on Tony, and... Uh, you know, it's kind of like Norvell said, he had a second angel. <laughs> and I think everybody thought that was going to be Gigi. It turned out to be Jimmy Golden. So, obviously, it was going to get Norvell Austin another one of the title shots that he wanted. So, Jimmy Golden won the loser leave Southeastern match over Rob. And uh, Les, Les said, you know, Ron, he said, I had never seen so many people crying after that match was over. You know, uh, 
we had been there for a lot of years. We'd been there five years, me and Rob and Jimmy and Bob Armstrong and so many wrestlers. Uh, uh, fans were really connected to us. And so, and then uh, in the last match, uh, you know, in, in what was going to be the Southeastern Championship match with uh, Briscoe and, uh, and uh, Slater, uh, Jack had gotten hurt in the match in Florida three days after the TV show that we just talked about. And he wasn't able to wrestle Slater. He wasn't even there, actually. Uh, for the And, uh, you know, uh, Tor Tanaka, who had destroyed Wayne Rogers in the early second second match, he got the shot instead of Jack Briscoe and Dick Slater. And uh, Slater won by disqualification over Tanaka, who ended up uh, getting so wild, he cost himself the chance to win the belt. Let's said the last match, the lights out match, who was really wild. To, mm. And I'm sure it was. Fans love those matches, man. They always begin these matches with the building's light were extinguished, mm-hmm. the total darkness. And uh, <laughs> then they left the lights off for 10 seconds. Then they brought the house lights up. And the announcer says that signifies that this match is not sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. <laughs> and it goes through no disqualification, no time limit. There has to be a winner. All the things that go along with one of these lights out matches. So uh, Les said the Mongolian Stomper won the match. But after it was over, uh, Les said uh, down came Tanaka, obviously. Who would have expected that, right? Uh, down came uh, Paul. Mm. Uh, then came, uh, you know, uh, Les said half the guys in the dressing room end up in the ring after the f- match was totally over. Wow. Wow. It sounds like the bounty was going to continue, Stud. So how how'd you guys do in attendance for that card? Well, it was down again, man, from the 3,000 that we had uh, the week before. Uh, it went down about 300 people to 2,700. Even with a great card like that, I mean, you know, uh, uh, obviously the war was really, really tremendously affecting that mm-hmm. territory. All right. How about the all-star card? You mentioned that earlier. And how did they do in attendance? Well, they were in another, believe it or not, another new building, the WNOX Auditorium, uh, which I know nothing about. I have no idea where that was in Knoxville, what size it was or anything else. But basically, it was the third different building they'd been in in four weeks, right? So so in this match, uh, this night, it was called a triple main event. Uh, and uh, the guy that uh, went to look at the size of the houses he gave me the cards and, and uh, that type of stuff. And uh, uh, one of the triple main events was a hair versus hair match with Ronnie Garvin versus the great Malenko. And, uh, and the first thing the guy says, he goes, you know, Ron, he says, neither one of them got their hair cut. <laughs> so, so I, you know, there's another example of what was going on with this other group uh, that false advertising. They basically lied to the fans. And, you know, and that didn't hurt just their business. It reflected on my business as well. You know, I mean, it hurt the wrestling business horribly. Do you mean neither neither one of them cut their hair on? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't there, you know, but that's what he told me, you know. And right. then he said the next match was for the ICW uh, title. Uh, that was a championship belt that the Poffos had up there in the Lexington, Kentucky. And I don't know what those initials actually stand for, the ICW. But uh, it was Bob Root versus the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Uh, then there was a Southeastern Tag Championship match. Not Southeastern the, this time. You know, uh, and Bob and Barry Orton uh, versus Lanny Poffo and Terry Gibbs. Plus, there were two other matches on the card. Mm. I don't know who were the wrestlers in the other two matches. Mm. But uh, I do know that the attendance was down again for them to a figure I heard of about 500. Uh, And so I'm sure fans at this point, they were confused. uh, I'm sure about where are these guys going to be next week? You know, what building are they going to next week? Mm -hmm. So. So, and I also don't know if they had another ridiculous challenge that they, that they had been doing every week. I can't imagine. 
why they keep on running shows with only around 500 fans. I mean, how does anybody get paid? I guess it was pretty good compared to independent shows today. So it's been another extremely informative first part of this studcast, especially the historical aspect of it. When we come back, we'll take our break right now. When we come back, we're going to be riding south for another card and hopefully some more info on the decision that you are facing. That's coming up when this Studcast continues. All right, Studcast fans, on this break, Stud, usually it's the end of the show when you tell us what's going to be happening on the next Studcast. But it seems like you are chomping at the bit to tell us something special right now. What's going on? Well, Jace, uh, you know, we're going to have something really different and something special in the next Studcast. Uh, we got Hulk Hogan coming back for one thing. Uh, he's going to be in the Gulf Coast Territory for a week. But uh, we are also going to talk about the how I'm, I'm making a decision in this next Studcast. Uh, and it's, I'm going to be deciding uh, what Southeastern Territory to sell, to get rid of. I'm going to give up on the two two territory uh, platform that we had been doing in 1979, and uh, so I think fans are going to be really, uh, really uh, kind of amazed at how I decide. Uh, I'm going to be uh, doing a lot of uh, uh, things that I don't normally do, and just really lay out uh, how I came to the decision of which of the two southeastern territories to hang on to. And uh, that's going to be something totally different from the normal Studcast. So obviously, well thought out. This is going to be definitely a Studcast not to miss next week right here. That'll be episode number 320. So let's get back into episode 319. How about that? And here we are in Mobile, Alabama's Expo Hall. It's Wednesday, October 10th, 1979. So set it up for us, Ron. Who was on this card? Well, this is a triple main event card. Really great card. Like I said, the same card's going to be in Dothan. It's going to be in Montgomery, and it's on Mobile on a Wednesday night. Uh, first match was Vince Violetti, who was facing the Hunter, which was Rock Hunter. Uh, Herb Calvert was going to be against the Inferno. A newcomer, Bob Owens, pretty decent wrestler, was taking on Eddie Mansfield. Uh, and then the first of three main events was the Southeastern Tag Championship match. The Assassins had split up the Stubbs and Stallings team the week before, and uh, they were defending against Jerry Stubbs again. And this time he had a different partner, and it was the old ever par- ever popular man wrestling pro, Leon Baxter. Yeah. So uh, then for the Southeastern belt, Austin Idol was going to be defending against Kevin Sullivan. Uh, the wrestler who had basically beat him all the way to the dressing room the week before after he got, after I got a win on Mr. Pensacola and I uh, forced him to leave the Southeastern Territory. Uh, and the third main event was a very humiliating type of match, and I quit match. And the uh, rules of this are pretty basic, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the only way you can win the match is uh, you have to make your opponent uh, get on the PA uh, and then say, I quit or I give up. And, <laughs> and, and this was going to be Ox Baker against me. Wow. So the ring announcer is literally standing with a microphone and ready at any moment to make sure the, the, the loser is ready to grab the mic and say, I quit, right? That's it. Actually, what <laughs> happens is the referee gets the microphone from the announcer. Okay. Brings it to <laughs> where the guys are in the ring. And then, and then you're asked if you want to say you give up or are you going to continue? I'm trying to think if I've seen one. I think I have, but I just can't remember seeing an I quit match. I don't know how, who came up with that, but it would certainly be very hu- a very humiliating way to lose in front of everybody. Well, actually, man, I came up with it. I came up with these I quit matches. And then the first one we did was in Knoxville. It was between me and Ron Wright in 1975. Mm. When I was in there as a heel, Ron Wright was a baby face. And we had done through every type of match. And we came down to uh, something, something uh, that had never been done before. Mm. And I had the idea. So uh, it was very rarely done, though. We didn't do it a whole lot very often in the five <laughs> years after that year, at that time frame. Wow. But uh, 
Yeah, we did the first one in 1975. All right. It really doesn't surprise me that you came up with the idea and you you probably don't get credit for it at all. All right. So just like last week's Learning Tree question where you came up with the tag team name Midnight Express. I never knew that. You came up with that in 1981, I think you said. A name used for 30 years that people still use today. Longer than any tag team name in wrestling history. But let's get back to that great Gulf Coast card and set it up for us. What was on the TV that built this card? Well, this TV opened up with Austin Idol at the set with Charlie. And they watched a video of a recent match, basically from Mobile about three days earlier. And uh, Austin was, uh, you know, he was a great heel. And wow, he was he was really, he was so proud and boastful, man, about what he had done since he came to Southeastern, all the guys that he had beat, and how no one, Charlie, is ever going to get this belt from me. And, uh, you know, and then he pushed Charlie, you know, to hurry up and uh, let me show everybody, you know, uh, how, how I ran the so-called Mr. Pensacola, uh, who was nobody other than the real gladiator, out of Southeastern for good in the loser lead match. So he was he – was, uh, Walking in tall cotton, I think, is a good expression for it. He was really having, enjoying himself. And uh, so they watched the last three minutes of the match from Mobile three days earlier. And the idol had complete control. He finished off Mr. Pensacola with his figure four leg lock. And then, as he usually did, he didn't want to let him go. He didn't want to get, let him get up after the victory. So, uh, uh, you know, and uh, idol had just taken over. Charlie couldn't get in a word about what was happening. Idol was on one of those roles. And, and in the video, as soon as the referee raised Idol's hand, uh, Idol jumped up from his seat, grabbed his belt, and he started to leave the set. And Charlie says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. You know, uh, come, come back here. Sit back down uh, for the last part of the video. We haven't seen the whole video. So Idol, uh, Idol didn't want to watch it. But, uh, you know, the, the video was still running. So, you know, when he sat down, there it was. And it didn't take but a few seconds to find out why Idol didn't want to watch it. And <laughs> because here came Kevin Sullivan, who was literally being shoved to the ring by this throng of fans, crazy mobile fans. Kevin was back watching the match, and they just grabbed him at the end of it and just took him to the ring, basically. And when they got there, you know, uh, Kevin, what's he going to do? He, so he... He got in the ring and he tore into Austin Idol. Uh, so studio audience, uh, having seen this before, not or never seen this match before, they reacted as we, as just as the Mobile Expo Hall people did. They exploded, man. So Idol got upset and, and he tried to get up and leave, you know, and he told Charlie he didn't want to see this part. But Charlie grabbed him by the arm and said, wait, it's not over, right? So uh, then on the video, it showed Kevin knock Idol out of the ring, and then Idol started going to the dressing room. But Kevin was just flailing him, man. Kevin was just beating his butt <laughs> all the way to the dressing room with every step he took. And studio crowd, they was enjoying it as much as the mobile crowd three days earlier. So the video, they got the big crowd noise, and you got the studio that's adding to it. So uh, Idol tried to leave again as Kevin knocked him uh, through the dressing room door of Expo Hall down there. And uh, so Charlie said, uh, sit down, sit down, Austin. No way, we're not through. So Idol screamed, you know, he says, this Boston goof, he said, this guy's crazy. You know, he says, I don't, I, I don't want anything to do with this guy. So Charlie said, well, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about that, Austin, because that's who you're going to be wrestling next week. And it's going to be for your belt. So the studio exploded again, man. Idle just then that was it. He, <laughs> there was no stopping him after that. He got up and he screamed on his way out, I hate this Southeastern company. <laughs> Last week he, he said he he would he felt like he was being screwed all the time by the company. And now he leaves the desk saying, I hate this company. So uh uh, you know, it, uh, uh, Idol, Idol was really good, and uh, and uh, so was Charlie. Charlie was really cool at the making these things work great. <laughs> okay, so, Stud, who was in the first TV match? Well, all right, wait a second, Stud. 
I bet I know. It was Kevin Sullivan, wasn't it? <laughs> guess, Les. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good guess, man. After watching that video, man, the TV crowd was ready for Kevin too. So, and you know, I was there for this TV, so that studio was all on their feet, man. Uh, and then they were all up there and they're screaming and crazy about a guy who had been there for only a month. He'd only wrestled on TV twice <laughs> since he'd been there. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, they were so loud and so into it that they fired Kevin up, man. <laughs> and, uh, and then he returned the favor to him, man. Uh, boy, he got a huge win. He went in and destroyed somebody. It was less than a three-minute match. I mean, I'd never seen Kevin. He was like a like a whirlwind, man. Just uh, he was a demon, <laughs> a, a Tasmanian devil. Good I, name. I, I remember when I, I remember the Tasmania. I know what they look like. <laughs> I remember when he was just getting going, and we thought, "Who is this dude? Check this guy out!" All right, so this TV's off to a great start, like the one last week. So, what was next? Well, the assassins joined Charlie at the set, man, to obviously a roar of booze. And they watched the video of their match uh, and uh, their win over Mike Stallings in the, in the uh, tag team match uh, three days earlier uh, that where they split up the team of Stubbs and, and Stallings. And they bragged about not just splitting up the Stubbs and Stallings team, but they bragged about Mike Stallings. You know, he goes, they, you know, basically uh, – we we could he he, he could have stayed here. It wasn't a loser leave match, but he goes, you know, we watched today earlier when we were recording interviews, and he says we didn't see his name on any card. So you know, Charlie, to to us, uh, we think we may have retired him from the sport. He may be out of wrestling forever. <laughs> so uh, when they finished, uh, the studio got another shot in the arm. Because here came Jerry Stubbs to the ring, and he had his new partner with him, the wrestling pro. And uh, they had a strong team to wrestle against, uh, a team that, uh, you know, uh, was good good wrestlers, Eddie Stella, Eddie uh, Mansfield and the Inferno. And uh, they got a great win over those two guys. Wow. All right, so this TV's definitely rocking. How about the personality profile? Who was on that? Well, I was on it, Dave. And uh, Charlie and I watched the video of me beating Oxbreaker in a Texas death match. And uh, then after my hand was raised, it, it showed him uh, hitting me for the, I think it was the third time he had hit me with a hard punch, man, since he had, I had been wrestling him. And I had to be carried back to the dressing room. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know, uh, what pain in your heart was all about until uh, I got those shots. And uh, uh, so Charlie and I discussed how rare we were going to be in an I Quit match, how rare these I Quit matches were, the next one that we we're going to be in, me and Ox. And, uh, and I had had, uh, you know, Charlie said that uh, he had talked to Ox Baker about this match earlier in the day. And he said, Ron, I got to be honest with you. He said, Ox not very happy about the, the possible humiliation of having to give up on the building's microphone so that everybody could hear you give up because, you know, he, he's never been in one of these matches. And, uh, so I talked about, uh, my having an advantage in that type of match because I, because I had a great finishing hole mm -hmm. fuller leg lock mm -hmm. and said, you know, and, and, and I, it's, uh, he said, I told him, I said, it's a hole that's definitely designed to make a man submit. And uh, and if the guy doesn't give it up, he's, I said, I can break their leg. And he goes, uh, and I'd be very honest with you in Ox Baker's uh, situation. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. I said, because he is responsible for the death of my father's uh, business partner and his wrestling partner, Ray Gunkel, wow. uh, years ago. You know, and I said, I, I've always... I have always wanted to get even for Ray with Oxbaker. Wow, that was going to be a very controversial match and a personal one for you, Ron. So who was next? Well, next was the very controversial Oxbaker, man. And uh, he did his normal thing. Uh, you know, once he came out of the dressing room, uh, 
he made everybody in the building uncomfortable as fast as he could. He spent almost as much time on the floor harassing the TV crowd as, as he'd spent in the ring. And I found out on this TV match uh, that it was Heart Punch wasn't Ox's uh, only finisher. I didn't realize Ox knew a wrestling hold, you know, but other than his heart punch. And so because of the type of upcoming match we were in, I think he used this uh, the extremely painful hold to get a victory. And basically, I think he was making a statement to me. And so, so to get this hold, he wrist-locked his opponent and he ran the guy's arm up his back. Uh, then he slid his fist and his arm between the guy's arm and his back, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and then he shoved it up as high as he could, man, to get it up, uh, up as far up the guy's back as he could, his arm. Wow. And then he, that, that was enough. The guy was already screaming that, that, that he wanted to give right then, <laughs> but he took it to a whole other level. Then he turned his back to the guy's back, and he hoisted the guy up in the, head, in the air. Wow. With his head. Head was high above uh, Ox's body with all the guy's weight on his arm, man. Wow. You could have heard that guy scream in Georgia, which was <laughs> about only about 10 miles from the television studio, right? <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, like my fuller leg lock, uh, it looked like that he had the perfect hole to make somebody quit too, man. Yeah, like for an I quit match, yeah. That sounds like an awful, painful hold, definitely. I'm kind of surprised Ox Baker knew something like that. I thought he was just brute force, clearly. All right, so how about the last match on this TV? Well, I was in the last match, and uh, after watching his match, uh, and to make a statement of my own, uh, back to Ox, man, you know, after seeing what he did, uh, in, uh, in my match, I had an opportunity to do just that. So I did something that I had never done before uh, in, a, in any match. Uh, but I, did, I got the fuller leg lock in a totally different way than usual. And I didn't grapevine the leg like I normally did and roll the opponent backward so that we both ended up on our back. But uh, the easy way to get it and the best way to get it was uh, I just stepped straight into the grapevine, facing the guy, stepped straight into the grapevine. I reached down and got hold of his foot. And I fell straight back and yanked him down on his face. Wow. He went down face first. And it was a much easier way to get the hold. And I'm sure, man, watching that, it got Ox Baker's attention <laughs> for the coming week. All right. So I'm learning a lot in this studcast. No surprise at all. I never knew there was more than one way to get that fuller leg lock really locked in, Ron. Well, Dave, you know, if you were here, you know, after we finish this stud cast, I'd show you how to do it. Oh no, I'm good. I'm good. I appreciate the offer, but I don't think I. I don't think uh, I, I'm good, ready for the I quit match, and I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't last long enough to satisfy fans. Three, two, one, it's over. Okay, and uh, I don't really need to, to to do that hold. All right, so let's talk about the result of the upcoming card. Well, the hunter, Rock Hunter, beat Vince Violetti. Uh, Herb Calvert won over the Inferno. Eddie Mansfield got a win over Bob Owens. Kevin Sullivan surprised every major city in the territory because they all had the same card. Uh, And he got a victory, and he won the Southeastern Championship from Austin Idol. He became an instant star that week. Uh, The Assassins successfully defended the Southeastern Tag Belts against Jerry Stubbs and the Wrestling Pro. And uh, this was going to be my last week in the Gulf Coast until the end of December of 1979. So obviously, Baker is going to be there. And uh, so I put Ox Baker over, uh, giving him, uh, uh, and he used the same hole on me that he did on the guy on TV. And, uh, and he, was going to be, uh, he was going to be on top uh, in that territory down there, and he was going to be carrying the heel load until the end of October of 1979. And uh, actually, we're going to get a surprise visit from the Hulk, followed by Bob Armstrong. Wow, full of surprises today, Stud. The Hulk and Bob Armstrong coming back in the next two weeks. 
Well, I kind of let the bag, the cat out of the bag, Dave, on that one, you know. <laughs> and, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, uh, you know, uh, about uh, Hulk. Uh, and and uh, so so let's give everybody the attendances for the Gulf Coast Territory yeah. this week. Yeah. Okay. Uh, every city was near the same as they were the week before. They were all good. They had been really good and growing every week for a month. Montgomery uh, went from 3,600. Only lost 100 fans down to 35. Mobile went from 49 down 200 fans to 4,700. And then Dothan went from 4,100. It actually went up 100 to 4,200. So the three-city total for the week was 12,400, which was only down 200 from the week before. That's amazing, Stud. The Gulf Coast was holding its own. Only 200 fans less than the week before? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that figure, uh, but the figure that stood out most to me was the fact that all three of the cities in the Gulf Coast Territory had an average, if you averaged out all those figures, uh, each one of those cities averaged 4,100 people. And the Knoxville crowd that we had earlier in this studcast was 2,700. So Knoxville in the last four months basically had gone from being maybe the best city in both of the territories, mm. to be in the worst of the four major cities. Okay, Ryan, we've covered what happened in both territories in the second week of October 1979. So where do we ride now? Well, let's go back to where we started today. I think that's what I said we'd, we would li- I would like to do. Uh, so uh, that's where I was recalling all the bad things that had happened so far in 1979. I'd basically gotten up to the second week in October of 1979, and uh, which was after recently firing Louis Toulet as a booker in the Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, he had lost the Hulk, which I mentioned, and the last week of July, uh, he lost the Samoans. In the first week of September, he lost Crusher Blackwell. Uh, uh, you know, so all four of those wrestlers, they were basically irreplaceable. I mean, how do you replace a guy like the Hulk and the Samoan team and Crusher Blackwell? I mean, wow, these are great wrestlers, and uh, and he lost them. So it was extremely concerning to the rest of the crew when you have a booker that loses guys like that that fast. You know, they 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 get a little antsy, man. They they get concerned about uh, where things are going. So uh, so well, there was another lingering problem with the firing of Louis. Uh, he had also brought in Dick Steinborn, the gladiator. And uh, and he also made uh, Dick the local promoter from Montgomery because Dick wore a mask to wrestle. Uh, you know, he could go around and be a local promoter there and uh, handle business on that part because nobody would realize who they're talking to, right? So he also brought in Herb Calvert, uh, Pierre Bonnet, uh, Vince Violetti, who was in this card, and others that had worked on the bottom of those cards. And um, more, most importantly, he had brought in Austin Idol. So these guys now had their uh, own uh, original booker had been fired, you know, and they, and they were all suspect. And when you, when you fire a booker and he has brought in talent, the talent that's still there are a little suspect about how they, how are we going to be used now that Louie's gone, right? So, Firing a booker is really it's much more of a risk than firing any wrestler because those wrestlers that the bookers brought in, they have a hard time feeling comfortable with another booker. They don't ever know how they're being perceived. They weren't brought in by him. They don't know how they're going to be handled by him. Right. So every, that's why every great booker, booker had his own crew. Mm. And uh, my father's a great example of that. Uh, Good bookers believed in certain wrestlers' ability to get over. And whenever they, wherever they took them, you know I mean? If they got over in one territory, you took them to another, they're going to get over there. And uh, the wrestlers had the same confidence in the booker. If he sells out one territory, he's going to sell out the next one. So in 1954, my father put together his first crew as a booker in the Gulf Coast Territory down there. Same territory we've been talking about today. And his first crew was Mario Galento, Sputnik Monroe, my dad's uncle, Lester Welch, Don Fargo, Dick Dunn, Greg Peterson, Billy Wiggs, and Joe Scarpa, uh, who was 
20 years later, going to be a star for Vince McMahon as Jay Strongbow mm-hmm. in the WWF. Mm-hmm. So my father set his first territory on fire with these guys. And when he left the Gulf Coast in 1958, he took a lot of them with him to Memphis. We went from Mobile to Memphis. And uh, Memphis was a dead territory. And he took those guys and set Memphis on fire. Uh, and, uh, you know, with basically the same crew that he had set the Gulf Coast on fire with. Uh, it worked in Mobile. It worked in Memphis. It worked five years later in Arizona. And three years after that in Atlanta. Same guys, same crews, same booker. Well, uh, Louis didn't have a great, uh, Louis didn't have, you know, a, a great crew like my father had. But, you know, he did have the confidence of a few guys, obviously. Dick Steinborn, who I mentioned, was a great talent in more ways than one. Uh, he gave me a notice just two weeks before the Gulf Coast card we discussed today. He let me know that he was he was going to be leaving. I would have kept him, but he didn't know, he wasn't confident that I was going to take care of him like Louie did. Hmm. So Austin Idol, you know, because, because it was the first time I had booked Austin, uh, and his and he had this relationship with Louis. Louis had brought him into the territory, mm-hmm. uh, and and made a star at him. And uh, so uh, you know he he was concerned that he was going to have to leave the territory sooner than he wanted to. So it was just the way the business worked. There was no hard feelings either way yeah. between the Booker and the wrestler. And uh, Idol was going to be coming back, so he let me know he was going to be leaving the territory too. Uh, pretty soon, and uh, but I tell you what, when he comes back, he's going to come back in the early 1980s, and he's going to fall in love with it, and he's going to stay for years in Pensacola. He's going to make that his home for probably close to 20 years. Wow, I remember those years too. Really fascinating stuff, Stud. We've gotten a, a real wrestling education today. Hate to say it, but we're out of time for this one. I know you said earlier the next two Studcast are leading up to a huge decision for you about your future and the future of Southeastern Wrestling. It's one stud cast down, one to go. So where will we be riding next week? Well, we were preempted from the TV in the Tennessee Territory in the third week of October 1979. And obviously, we'd been having smaller crowds than what I had anticipated we would ever draw anymore. And, uh, you know... Uh, and, and since we had no TV show to promote another card in the Coliseum, I decided not to run Knoxville that next week. So in this next studcast, we're going to talk about the Gulf Coast Territory uh, like we did in this one. We won't be talking about the Tennessee Territory, not the match part of it anyway. And, uh, and I mentioned the Hulk earlier. I kind of let the cat out of the bag. But uh, he called me out of the clear blue and he asked me if he could work some shows. Uh, he said he was leaving the Memphis Territory. That's where he went when he left uh, Gulf Coast. He went into the Memphis Territory. He said he was going to be, uh, he was going to come back to Pensacola. He called it home to Pensacola because he was a beach <laughs> dude. Man. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to come and spend a week in Pensacola, Ron, before I go to the Georgia Territory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, I booked him. He said, you know, I'd like to work. I'd like to work some shows for you. So I booked him four nights, and we'll be discussing those cards on next week's next week's uh, Studcast. And then we're going to spend the rest of the show on how, why, and what I had decided to do with Southeastern Wrestling. Hmm. And, uh, we've been on this for a while. It was definitely, you know, the most difficult decision I ever made especially at that point in my life. I'd never made a decision that difficult. And I will, to the best of my ability, next week explain my thoughts and the reasons for making the decision, uh, uh, what I did, uh, what I did, and, uh, and my plans going forward. And uh, once I made the decision, uh, I went to work on my future. Uh, dramatic changes were going to be made quickly, and it had to be because I was dealing with two of the owners of the most uh, influential, one of the most influential territories in the world, which was the Georgia Territory at that point. Yeah. And uh, the NWA secretary was Jim Barnett. So uh, so this next studcast 
it's going to be a one-of-a-kind experience for all of us, not just for the fans, but for me as well. I've never sat and explained this, you know, but I'm going to do my best to explain why I decided to pick the territory I did. So please join me for what I believe will be something special. Well, I have no doubt about that. I knew we were going to be getting close to decision time. So you've really set it up perfectly today, Stud, recalling the problems and pain of 1979 and next week giving us the ultimate decision of what to do about all of this. So I can't wait on what I think is going to be the most anticipated Studcast maybe ever. Hey, folks, you know the deal on Facebook. Go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. Like and follow him there to become friends with a living legend. On Twitter, same thing. Now known as X, of course. Find him on Twitter, X at Ron Fuller Welch and follow him there. Check out the fantastic website at tnstud.com. It's famous, tnstud.com. This studcast will be there with every studcast ever done. Now 319 are posted on that website, tnstud.com, absolutely free. You can also find the stud store where you get 43 super studcast t-shirts, four different 8x10 photos, and the thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Get your personally autographed copy right there at tnstud.com. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Get the best in old school wrestling. Find 344 videos. The last 96 studcaster there. 52 stud stories. 72 short rides with the stud. And nine Ask the Stud question and answer shows now available. That's YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Put in Southeastern Rewind on the search bar once you go to YouTube and you'll be set up for the best in old school wrestling. All right. It's it's yours, Stud. Any last comments? Well, yeah. Obviously, thanks as always, man, to those listening today. And uh, hopefully you can join me for what I think should be a very special Studcast next week. Uh, please take care of yourselves and others. May God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC.